copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, as I've mentioned now several times, the, the sections we're looking at don't always match up to the chapter divisions. So we're going to be looking this morning at chapter 6, verse 10, through chapter 7, verse 14. As the preacher is, is trying to help us ask the questions that matter the most. Last time we asked the question, how much is enough? And the preacher answered that for us. This morning, the question he wants us to ask is, what good is it? What good is it? What's the point? What's the purpose? What, what good is it? Because in asking that question, he wants to lead us from the good through the better to that which is best. But in order to see how the preacher wants to do his work in and for us this morning, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we do come desiring for the Holy Spirit to be at work in our midst. Holy Spirit, we pray, open our eyes of faith this morning. Open our ears, open our hearts so that we might receive the message of Holy Scripture not just of a preacher, but indeed of, of, of the premier preacher, you, Spirit, who breathed out these words so long ago. Holy Spirit, we pray, speak the words again so that we might hear the very word of God this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. <clears throat> Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former things better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, 
Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Spencer Silver was just a couple of years past his PhD work in organic chemistry. He had taken a job with 3M, working with a group of five researchers in the area of pressure-sensitive adhesives. As he worked on one particular molecular experiment, Silver added more than the recommended amount of chemical reactant that causes the, the molecules to polymerize. And the result was astonishing. As he refined it, Silver had struck on an adhesive that had high tack but low peel, and so was was reusable. By and large, 3M greeted Silver's discovery with a bit of a yawn. They, They did create a bulletin board that had this permanent tacky substance on it to which notes could be stuck But the rest of the developers looked at Silver's adhesive and they said, eh, what good is it? Well, about four years later, another 3M researcher, a man named Art Fry, he was having trouble keeping his place in his hymnal as he sang in the church choir. And so he wished that he had a bookmark that would stick, but wouldn't stick so much to the pages of his hymnal that he would damaged the book or somehow tear it when he took it off. And so Fry went to Silver and asked if he could use the adhesive to create such a bookmark. And he did, but, but when he brought it to the 3M executives, they said, well, that's nice, but what good is it? Well, both Silver and Fry were frustrated. One day Fry was writing a report and he took his bookmark and he cut it in half and he wrote a note on it, he slapped it on the report and he sent it up to his boss. And his boss took the bookmark off, wrote a response, slapped it back on the report, returned it back to Fry, and Fry later said that was the eureka head-slapping moment. I started to feel excitement. I had my product, a sticky note. What good was it? What good was Silver's adhesive and Fry's bookmark? Only the basis and perhaps the most important product 3M ever created, the post-it note. Now, we know this is how great inventions develop. There's frustration, there's dead ends, difficulties, struggle, adversity, profound questions like what's the use and what's, what good is it? And then, eureka moments. And in those moments, wisdom and knowledge and hope. But that's not just the shape of development of great inventions. That's actually the shape of our lives as well. If you're like me at all, you know a great deal of frustration. Dead ends, difficulties, struggles, adversity. So much so that you begin to ask, what's the point? Or what good is it? Why am I bothering with all of this? Is there any hope? Is there any purpose to any of this at all? Those are the questions the preacher wants you to ask this morning. 
After all, our temptation when we are confronted by life's adversity and frustration is to laugh superficially, to try to escape through diversions and parties and vacations, and then to long for days gone by when it all seemed so much simpler. But the preacher wants us, when we're confronted with adversity, when, when we're confronted with reality as it actually is, not as we wish it would be, he, he wants us to ask the hard questions. He wants us to ask, what good is it? Because he wants to show us the pathway to a better life. Indeed, a life that, that, that might actually give us the best thing there actually is. All that this life can really offer us. But in order to get to the best The preacher wants us to ask questions about what is good. That's where he begins. You saw that? Chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, he says. And it is known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Now, what he just told us here in chapter 6, verse 10, he's told us before, at least in different forms, chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 15, but there's a difference here. Here in chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, that the preacher is trying to raise, us, raise questions about what is good by showing us our, our profound weakness. He tells us whatever has been has already been named. And the question that should come to our minds when we read that is, well, who named them? If everything that's come to pass has already been named, then who, who named those things? Who names all things? Well, while Adam was given by God the, the privilege of naming the animals in the Garden of Eden, God is ultimately the one who has named all that is to come. Indeed, the naming of things is actually a mark of sovereignty. It's a mark of, of knowledge, of power. When God delegated the responsibility of naming to Adam and Eve, he was giving them dominion and rule over his creation to name reality as it actually is. But, but God is the great namer because God is the true king of the world. He named humans Adam. He knows what, what humans are. He names us. He tells us we are but dust, just dust. The preachers already told us in this book, in chapter 3, all are from dust, and to dust, all return. And because we are dust, we can't dispute with God. Oh, we might try to wage a verbal battle with God like Job did, but we'll find it's to no advantage. And when we're ultimately confronted by God like Job was, we end up saying like Job did, behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Isn't that the case? When ultimately God confronts us, whether with his word or in providence, don't we feel so small? We know that God is incredibly big. 
He governs all his creatures, all their actions, and we feel so small when the forces that he brings in his world confront us. He wants us to feel our weakness. As we feel our weakness, our lack of control over our lives, our sense that someone more powerful than us actually rules over us, that weakness should lead us to wonder, to begin to ask the the hard, good questions. The preacher gives them to us in verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the full few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Those are the questions. What's the purpose? What's the good of it all? After all, if we spend our few days in weakness and if we cannot control our own destinies, if there are forces or if there's a person who's larger than us, who governs all his creatures and all their actions, then what is good about our lives? Those are the questions the preacher wants you to ask this morning. He wants you to question the point of life. He wants you to confront it head on so that you will begin to, to ask the question, not just what good it is, but what makes for a better life? What makes for a better life? That, that's what the preacher begins to describe for us. Beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, and running to verse 12. Over and again, I hope you notice as we read the language of, it is better than. It is better than. The preacher is, is, is quite literally describing alternatives. And he's saying that this is more good than that. And he's doing this by way of several proverbs. Now, now these proverbs, which I trust you notice, they, they kind of look like proverbs from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs are, are, are a particular kind of, of literature. They're a particular kind of saying. They're not laws. They're not regulations. They're not things that are always true or ought always to be done. Rather, Proverbs are, are statements of wisdom. They tell us how the world generally works. And they tell us about how to live in this world with some measure of skill. And keeping that in mind helps us understand what the preacher's telling us here. Because he's telling us what is better about this thing better being more good than that thing, he tells us especially about three areas which on the surface don't actually look or even feel better. And yet the preacher tells us they actually are. And the first area of of life that is better is actually the pathway to true wisdom is sorrow. Did you see that? Chapter 7, verse 1, he says, a good name is is better than precious ointment, and, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, each of these proverbs in verses 1 to 4 is linked together with this language of of sorrow. In verse 1, he's telling us it's better for us to have a, a good reputation on the day of our death. 
Uh, the day you die, it's, it's better to have a good reputation than to have delightful, expensive gifts like perfume or even children. And then in verses two to four, he's telling us that, that to go to the house of mourning is to be preferred to going to the house of feasting. Sorrow, he tells us, is better than, than laughter. Now, that's the exact opposite of what most of us think. It is the exact opposite of how we try to live our lives. When we are, when we are confronted with death and dying, we want to shove it to the sides. When we're confronted with, with judgment day, with, with the end of our lives and then judgment beyond, we want to believe like the, the rock star prince that life is just a party. Parties aren't meant to last and we will, might as well party like it's 1999, which of course was 24 years ago, sadly. And wow, it's really hard. So maybe just, it's a metaphor, right? But that, that's what we think. We, 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 we think that mm, we don't want to think about sorrow. We don't want to think about death and dying. We don't, we don't want to think about judgment day. So we'd much rather simply party. We'd much rather enjoy ourselves, go to the house of mirth. You know what the preacher calls that? That worldview that refuses to reckon with the end and instead spends its time partying? He calls it folly. He calls it folly. The house of fools, he says, is in the house of mirth. Why? Well, because our sorrows and our adversities they teach us something very important. The preacher tells us in chapter 7, verse 2, this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Listen, you and I and everyone in this world have something in common. We are all going to die. We're all going to die. If Jesus doesn't come back, that is one thing I am certain of. You and I all are going to die. And rather than escape this reality through money or sex or power or good times, the preacher is telling you that the way of wisdom, the way to the better life, is to actually consider that. To, to reckon with that fact. You are going to die. And in the light of that reality, to live now in such a way that you are ready to die, that you are prepared for that last day, and beyond that, the judgment day. That is better, he says. That is more good than the alternatives. That's, that's why sorrow is better. But not just sorrow. The preacher tells us, second, that, that rebuke is better. Look at, look at verse 5. So he says, he says, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Again, these proverbs are loosely connected with this theme of rebuke. In verses 5 and 6, the preacher is telling us that when, when our lives are running off the rails, as we're pursuing wealth and possessions and passions and pleasures of this world, it's better for us to, to be rebuked than for others to join in us in our foolish course or, or simply to ignore us. It's better when we're going sideways for someone to tell us the truth, to rebuke us. 
And then in verse 7, when there's, when there's oppression and injustice, the wise go crazy until they can confront it. The, the wise confront injustice where they find it because they know that a rebuke is far more loving than a blind eye. Telling the truth about oppression and injustice is far better than the complicity of silence. But for most of us, again, when when we think about what could come into our lives that would be better, that would be more good, rebukes are not high on the list. I don't think anyone here is saying, oh, that's me. I'd much rather be rebuked than anything else in this world. That's better. But what the preacher is telling us here, I think, is important. Not to desire loving confrontation is to love folly is to love sin more than wisdom, is to love that which is worse rather than that which is better. The Bible tells us this, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Or Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. So why should we desire loving rebukes? Again, because they point out our sin. They point out our areas of folly. They, they point out our waywardness. And they demonstrate the, the genuine love that someone has, that they are willing to risk my anger for my good. To be loved that much, knowing that I might get angry with them, but, but for my good, they're willing to risk that because they love me. It's why the preacher says it's better, the pathway to a better life Sorrow, rebuke, but also patience. Patience, that's what he says in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing, he says, than the beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former things better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask that. Again, these Proverbs link together with patience. Verse 8 tells us that, that the patient see a matter to its conclusion. They don't give up. Verse 9, the patient are not angry in the face of provocation. Verse 10, the, the patient view the present day as God's day. They don't long for the past. Uh, the patient understand, as the great theologian Billy Joel once said, uh, the good old days weren't always good. And tomorrow's not as bad as it seems. That's what the patient understand. But again, most of us don't view such patience as making our lives better. If anything, we, we idolize the impatient. We say of, our, of, of others who are impatient, oh, I love that guy. He's a gunslinger. He's a deal maker. He doesn't take no for an answer. He's a driver. We, we privilege and prize and idolize the impatient. Or we say about ourselves, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a very patient person by nature. Yeah, I just wasn't born with that kind of patience. You're just going to have to live with the fact I'm, pretty, I'm an impatient person. I want what I want when I want it. Well, what the preacher's telling us is actually to live skillfully in this world, we must learn patience. How do we learn patience? Sorrow and rebuke. 
Don't you see the sorrows that he's commended to us, the rebukes that he's commended to us, that those are the instruments that God uses to help us learn patience, but not just patience, also wisdom. You see, God desires for us to live in this world skillfully. He wants us to live in this world with wisdom. That, that's the import of verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good, he says, with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. Wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom is good. It's advantageous to be wise. It preserves the lives of those who have wisdom. And yet, as we'll see next week, wisdom in and of itself is not the best that life can offer. Certainly, wisdom is better than folly. Wisdom learned from sorrows and from rebukes and by way of patience. It is better. Wisdom does help us answer the question, what good is it? But wisdom actually only operates correctly when wisdom leads us to that which is best. And the preacher does this for us. Did you see verse 13? He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What's the best? Well, the best comes to us when we not only reckon with, but embrace the fact that God is sovereign. God is sovereign over our lives. His purposes for our lives are, in fact, the best purposes. His pathways are better than any pathway we could think of for ourselves. I don't know if you've ever played this game in your own mind. I certainly have. The two rows diverging in the wood game, to borrow from Robert Frost. And we went to that, that crossroads moment, and we went right. And so we spend much of our days thinking, what if I had gone left? What if I had chosen that path? Of course, it's a foolish game because it wasn't our choice at all. God's ultimately the sovereign one who's made our pathway for us. And what appeared to be a crossroad moment was actually just another crook in the path that he's made, a broken road perhaps, but he's been the one who's been leading us all along. You see, the preacher wants us to know wisdom, to know the way to the best life by showing us the work of God. He's the one who makes our path. And it very well may be crooked, and there's no man on earth who can straighten out the path that God has for you. This crooked road that he set you on, it's his road for you. No one can say to God, what has he done? That's what the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar learned, isn't it? In Daniel chapter 4, after God brought him into the pathway of judgment and humility, Nebuchadnezzar says, he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What have you done, God? We don't get to say that. No, God is the one who's at work, and the best life comes from recognizing that that's the case, that God is the one who brings about both prosperity and adversity. Shall we, should we accept prosperity and not also accept adversity from his hand? It isn't the real question, not why do good things happen to bad people, 
Oh, excuse me, not, not why, do, why bad things happen to good people, but the real question is, in fact, why do good things happen to bad people? I mean, that's, that's the question, isn't it? Because when we begin to look at our own hearts, when we begin to look at our own lives and, and we're really honest, we can see our own waywardness, our own folly, the foolishness, our determination not to embrace sorrow and adversity, to live in the house of mirth, to somehow avoid open rebuke, to somehow hide and, and try to avoid the loving words of concerned friends, to, to fail to learn patience, but rather as, as we're 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old and we're still impatient because we still haven't learned our lessons. I mean, we, we begin to see our hearts as they actually are when we look at ourselves honestly. We begin to wonder why the sovereign God of the universe even puts up with us at all. Why does, why does he exercise such patience with you and me when we continue to embrace folly over and again? Friend, what you need to know this morning is, is the sovereign God of the universe doesn't put up with you. He's actually pursuing you. He's pursuing you through all of these crooked pathways he has you on, through all the sorrow and adversity that comes into your life, the rebuke of of friends who care about you, the hard lessons and patience you've had to learn, the sovereign God of the universe is pursuing you. Because your sovereign God is not simply a sovereign God of power, he's also a sovereign God of grace and steadfast love and faithfulness. And consider all that he has done for you. He has sent his son as the man of sorrows to endure adversity, to receive open rebuke. And and Jesus, the son of God, possessed his soul in patience. And he died a sinner's death, your death, my death, so that we might know what is good and better and best. This is what God has done for you. But, But consider not just what he's done for you, consider your own life. All the different times where the the car might have gone off the road, the train might have jumped off the rails, and yet it didn't. All the times of adversity where God limited his hand, stayed it, because he wasn't really after harm, he was after your healing. That's what he was up to. Yes, he brought you to the house of mourning, but that's because Jesus himself said, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. By whom? By Jesus himself. When we come to God through Jesus by the Son, what do we find? We, define, we find that our sorrows are relieved. And the rebukes that we thought were coming fallen on him. And the patience that he learned through loud cries and loud tears were for you. They were for you. And so this morning, maybe you need to come to Jesus in the midst of your sorrow and adversity and difficulty in the midst of the patience you were learning and say, Jesus, my Jesus, I love you. I know you are mine. Lord, help me to say it again. Because if you can say that, if you can come this morning saying those words, Jesus, I love you. In the midst of my sorrow, I see it. I see what you're up to. I love you I, more. I know that you love me. What you'll find is the answer to the question, what good is it? Well, Jesus, 
And Jesus means that he's the best that this life can offer. Coming to know him, drawing near to him, knowing his love for you. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, may we sing these words not simply as words, but Lord, may they be the very prayer of our hearts. My Jesus, I love you. I know you are mine. Lord, grant us grace this morning to say these words from our heart, knowing that you have been pursuing us through all that has been happening, all that's been happening. When we've been tempted to throw up our hands and say, what good is it? You've been pursuing us so that we might know Grant us grace, Lord, to consider the work of God this morning, your work in our hearts and lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.